and welcome to the Deep Dive Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Nick Espinoza, and we're going to be talking about all things cybersecurity, cyber warfare, and technology related. And I think we're one of the only ones out there that's doing that right now. If you'd like to be part of the radio show in any way, shape, or form, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send us an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. We have an action-packed show as always. There's always a lot to cover, so stick around with us as we deep dive into a topic and we catch up on everything else. So without further ado... Let's begin. And we've got a great show for you this week. Obviously, we're going to be catching up on the news and all of that. But our deep dive is actually talking about China. As I'm sitting here uh, with my initial broadcast on Monday, November 28th, China is in the process of seeing riots melting down over various things. But we here in the West, we here outside of China, have to own part of this too. Hear me out. Listen to my deep dive. See if you agree with me. If not, you know, let me know on social media or send me a message or whatever it is. But I think we own part of this as well. That's important to understand. And so stick around for that. But as always, let's start with the news. And in Twitter news, would you trust Twitter's encrypted messaging or at least their upcoming one? This is what we're talking about here today in this news segment. This is coming from Tanya Riley of CyberScoop. And I thought she had a great opening preamble here. And I quote, for years, privacy advocates have pushed Twitter to roll out end-to-end encrypted messaging on the platform. Now, Elon Musk appears to be moving toward finally delivering this long-sought feature, but his deep cuts to the company's workforce and chaotic management style are raising major questions about whether he can do so responsibly. I think that is exactly, in a nutshell, the issue here. Now, in a presentation to his employees the week of Thanksgiving... Elon Musk laid out his vision for encrypted uh, messaging on the platform. Most cybersecurity professionals, myself included, are deeply skeptical that Musk can actually execute on this plan while addressing the serious safety concerns that a move to encrypted messaging entails. Now, think about it this way. Twitter has lost more than half of its workforce, as well as its chief information security officer, head of privacy, and head of trust and safety. Also, they have struggled to roll out new products under Elon Musk's watch. Uh, You know, obviously, we've all seen this just meltdown in the news, launching and then quickly abandoning a premium subscription and verification product after it was used to impersonate well-known figures and brands on the platform. Like, so somebody spun up a fake verified Pepsi account and posted that Coke was better. Uh, Somebody spoofed Eli Lilly, the large um, manufacturer of pharmaceuticals, basically saying we at Eli Lilly are going to make all insulin free now. That tanked Eli Lilly's stock, uh, stock price, or at least it hit it really hard. These are huge problems. And so a lot of uh, advertisers are actually pausing their uh, their advertising campaigns on Twitter. Apparently, top fifty of uh, top the top or fifty of the top one hundred, I should say, uh, advertisers are now stopping working with Twitter until this is figured out. Meaning, Twitter is not getting money from those organizations now. More than five years later, for the record, on a tangent, Meta, aka Facebook, is still working on rolling out end-to-end encryption across all of its messaging platforms. Twitter has not announced a timeline for encrypting direct messages or DMs, but there has been some uh, basically speculation that they have been moving to this or Twitter's been moving this to a while as a researcher found uh, code for the signal encryption protocol uh, buried into Twitter's code. So who knows how long this will take? I am very skeptical. And oftentimes when they say, oh, it is fully end to end encrypted. It's actually not WhatsApp, which is now a Facebook product or a meta product and has been for years. They claim end-to-end encryption only to find out that they are not 
and really haven't been. Zoom also said that they were end-to-end encrypted. We found out they absolutely were not end-to-end encrypted at the beginning of the pandemic. So these are things that are obviously huge, huge issues right now that we need to uh, keep on in front of. But there you go. So if you think that um, you know encrypted messaging is coming to Twitter anytime soon and it's end-to-end and it actually is end-to-end, I am skeptical. Meaning... Elon Musk can say, oh, yes, we have end-to-end encryption now. I'm not fully believing it in the same way that every time he goes out there and hypes autopilot for Tesla, you know, the NTSB, NHTSA, and the state of California have some very serious legal issues with him claiming that when, quite frankly, it's not that due to crashes, fires, all those kinds of things. We're getting there, but we're not yet there. And I just suspect that we're going to see this from Elon Musk talking about encrypted DMs on Twitter. We'll see what happens. But that is your Twitter news of the week. And in Google news, Google secretly installed spyware into one million phones, allegedly. Now, here's what's going on. This is coming from the Boston Herald. And the Department of Public Health in the state of Massachusetts was accused of working with Google to, quote unquote, secretly install COVID-19 contact tracing spyware onto more than one million Android smartphones throughout the state. The new Civil Liberties Union Alliance, or excuse me, the new Civil Liberties Alliance, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit, filed a lawsuit a couple of weeks ago in the U.S. District Court on behalf of two Massachusetts Android users who allege that a DPH contact tracing app was downloaded onto their phones on or around July 1st of 2021 without their, quote, permission or awareness. And to quote the complaint, conspiring with a private company to hijack resident smartphones without owner's knowledge or consent is not a tool that the Massachusetts Department of Public Health may lawfully employ in its efforts to combat COVID-19. Such brazen disregard for civil liberties violates both the United States and Massachusetts's constitutions, and it must stop now. Now, a DPH spokesperson declined to comment to the Boston Herald, stating the department has not received any documentation related to the lawsuit and, quote, does not comment on pending litigation. The complaint also alleges that DPH began working with Google on June 15th of 2021 to install the app into more than one million Android phones located within the state of Massachusetts, impacting people, obviously, who live or work there. Or imagine flying into... Boston, let's say I fly into Boston and I'm in Massachusetts during this period or, and I have an Android phone or is Google now IDing me as a phone in, in Massachusetts? They're going to push that too. Obviously, there are more than one million people and one million Androids uh, in Massachusetts, but obviously that's a huge thing. Now, this was allegedly done to, quote, increase adoption, end quote, because, quote, few Massachusetts residents voluntarily installed this software. Obviously, you could go get it in the App Store yourself. We are talking about people that just got it without their consent or awareness. Now, once the app is downloaded, the user's phone is constantly connected to and information is exchanged with other nearby devices using Bluetooth to create a record of those connections. Meaning when you have this app on and your Bluetooth is on and you're walking, let's say, down a busy street in Boston, uh, if you've got uh, another person with that app and their Bluetooth on, your phones will interact to say, hey, we're within each other. If you have reported that you have COVID and you're walking down the street, everybody around you with that app with Bluetooth tooth turned on now gets an alert to say, hey, you are within proximity of somebody that has COVID. That's essentially what we are talking about here. Now, if a user, uh, like I said, opts into this, it sends a record to to essentially everybody. And then obviously it updates the Department of Health and Google and everybody else. Now, if somebody does not opt in, 
their information is still shared via Bluetooth and becomes available to Google, Department of Home, uh, Department of Health in Massachusetts and other third parties that can trace the user's identity, the past contacts through device information, and the complaint stated. Now, at least two dozen other states have developed COVID-19 contact tracing apps using Google's API, but Massachusetts, at this moment, as far as we know, is the only state to, quote-unquote, surreptitiously embed the app onto mobile devices that DPH locates within its borders. Now, once downloaded, the app does not appear alongside other apps on the Android device's home screen, meaning they didn't put the little icon that you can tap on. They basically just installed it without going that, that extra step. It could only be found by opening the settings feature and then using the view all apps feature, and then you can see everything installed onto your phone so obviously how many times do you go in there and look at that i try to go through mine about once a month or so just to make sure i don't have anything rogue installed or i forgot to remove something etc etc but most people will never do that for the life of their phone now when Android users discovered and deleted the contact tracing app, DPH allegedly proceeded to then reinstall it onto their smartphones, according to this lawsuit. Now, also according to the NCLA, that's the new Civil Liberties uh, Alliance, it appears that iPhone users had to consent before a similar app was installed onto their devices. So if you had an iPhone in the state of Massachusetts, no problem. If you had a Android in the state of Massachusetts, it was a bit of a gamble. So there you go. Obviously, a flagrant violation of constitutional rights, assuming that this is true. We'll see where this lawsuit goes. You know I'll keep you up to date on this, but that is your Google slash spyware slash COVID slash oh my God news of the week. And in Facebook news, Facebook is making some changes that prove you can't please everybody. Here's what's going on. This is coming from TechCrunch, and I think this is interesting. Facebook is notifying users that it will remove four information fields from its profiles starting next month in December. These fields include religious views, political views, addresses, and the interested in field, which indicates a user's sexual orientation. Now, this change will go into effect, as I mentioned, on December 1st, and a spokesperson for Facebook, a.k.a. Meta, said in an email that the reason behind this was to make the social network easier to use. And I quote, as part of our effort to make Facebook easier to navigate and use, we're removing a handful of profile fields interested in religious views, political views, and address. We're we're sending notifications to people who have these fields filled out, letting them know that these fields will be removed. This doesn't change or affect anyone's ability to share this information about themselves elsewhere on Facebook. End quote. In other words, If you want to go ahead and create a post to say, hey, everybody, my address, because I just lost it, is this, you know, you can put that on Facebook and Facebook, believe me, they will data mine that, you know, till till the cows come home. Now, the notice also indicates that users other information, specifically their profile information, will remain on their profiles as long with along with the rest of their contact and basic information. Now, Facebook's decision to get rid of those specific profile fields is part of efforts to streamline the platform, which currently currently consists of several features that are somewhat outdated, again, according to Facebook. It's worth noting that the information fields that Facebook is choosing to remove are ones that other major social media networks simply don't offer. So Instagram and TikTok, for example, have simple bios that, that let users share a little bit about themselves without going into the specific details, such as political or religious views. Remember, understand Facebook, the behemoth that it was, was set up first to data mine the bejesus out of you to sell that data to advertisers and then to hone in artificial intelligence to make sure that they the advertisers were paired with the right person. And now they're starting to realize that mm, 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 not happening because in the past, 
past, people may have been interested in filling out their profiles with additional information, but as privacy infringements have come to light, many are no longer doing that, myself included. I have a public Facebook account. Please go follow me there if you're on Facebook and that's your ecosystem of choice. But I also have an internal private Facebook that I'm required to have that has that to administer the public one. And that doesn't even have my name on it. It's got basic information uh, that, that is completely false, no address or anything like that. So there you go. That is your Facebook news of the day. Go remove your information from Facebook. You're doing yourself a favor. And in U.S. government news and holy cow, Iran has hacked the U.S. government. Now, multiple sources are, are reporting this. I cribbed this from Cybersecurity News. This is crazy. U.S. Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, known as CISA, uncovered a potential cyber attack against the U.S. federal network where attackers compromised the organization's domain controller and possibly deployed a crypto miner and a credential harvester. A domain controller is that central piece of technology in a network that checks in usernames and passwords. It kind of runs security. Again, anybody that's technical listening to this, you know what I'm talking about here. Non-technical people, I'm speaking to you. That That's an overview. It does a ton of things, but at its core, it's pretty critical to the security uh, of a network. Now, Iranian APT, or Advanced Persistent Threat Hackers, launched an attack on the Federal Civilian Executive Branch, known as the FCEB organization, by exploiting the Log4Shell vulnerability in an unpatched VMware Horizon server. That is absolutely and utterly shameful and ridiculous. Now, if you recall, Log4Shell was a zero-day vulnerability in Log4J. Log4J was a popular Java logging, uh, logging framework that involved uh, arbitrary code execution. This affected a wide-ranging amount of products. There were national alerts for cybersecurity personnel. IT and cybersecurity people were busy for, God, it must have been like three weeks updating, flipping everything, everything that had Log4j in it because this vulnerability was so huge. If it was publicly exposed, it literally would allow anybody to walk right into a, you know, a piece of technology, a server, whatever it is, and take it right over. That is absolutely crazy. Now, CISA believes that this attack was initiated by the Iranian government, specifically their backed hackers, who installed what is known as the XMR or XM rig crypto mining software, and then they moved laterally uh, to the domain controller. That that is, again, that central piece of uh, security technology in a, in a network that, that logs people in and out. They compromised credentials, and then they implanted basically a reverse proxy on several hosts to in, in order to maintain persistence on the network. So back in April... Of this year, uh, CISA conducted a routine investigation and suspected uh, malicious APT or advanced persistent threat activity on the FCEB network with the help of Einstein. That is their intrusion detection system or IDS. Einstein is pretty cool uh, if you if you know about it. Now, during their investigation, their researchers found bi-directional traffic, meaning traffic leaving the network and coming into the network between the network and a known malicious IP address out in the world associated with with the exploitation of Log4Shell in VMware servers. Now, the Iranian threat actors initially found an unpatched VMware Horizon server that was deployed by the organization. They established a connection with that address. And I mean, this is absolutely crazy. And let's talk mitigation quickly here because CISA, once again, had to advise the following recently that everybody here, you know, if you're running a business or even in your home, 
that you install update builds basically to ensure if you're in business that your VMware, uh, you know, is up to date. But keep all of your software up to date. If you're listening to me and, and you know, you're a home user or whatever, everything from your Adobe Acrobat to Windows to your iPhone or Android, everything has to be up to date because we patch primarily to fix vulnerabilities. If you're one of those people that says, oh, I will never update this, all you're doing is introducing threat into your life. Also, minimize uh, internet-facing attack surfaces. This goes for home as well. So if you have like one of those firewalls that allows you to get in to look at, you know, things like your Nest, uh, you know, your Nest thermostat or, or those kinds of things, make sure that you have those things locked down because you don't want people to easily be able to get footprints or footholds into your life. Start using uh, good practices for identity management as well. You know, if you're a business, there are IAM or Identity Access Management platforms out there. Uh, you know, if you're a user, just make sure you've got everything uh, multi-factor authenticated, uh, you know, different passwords for everything, all those kinds of things, uh, you know, and, and on and on and on. And I'm not going to go through all of the other business advice that they have, but make sure you're keeping your stuff up to date. Make sure you're backing it up. Make sure you've got good multi-factor authentication, that you're not reusing passwords, all these kinds of things. If your password for Facebook is the same as your bank, please go change it. I have no problem. I'll still be here probably talking on the radio, but Iran has hacked the U.S. government. That is never a good day. They'll continue to try and hopefully we'll continue to thwart. And there you are. And before we head over to the next segment, I wanted to let you know, and I've done this on a couple of shows and I keep being reminded to do this and I always forget. Uh, basically, if you didn't know, I put out content on a daily basis, not just here on the radio where you're listening to me, but actually I put it quite a lot of places, daily podcasts and videos on some of the latest trends, technology, cybersecurity, privacy, all these kinds of things I keep day to day. And some of the segments that I do for my news section or even my breaches of the week every Sunday gets translated into this show. But I do this as essentially a labor of love. You know, I don't have any kind of monetization anywhere. I just do it to keep people informed and to keep everybody interested. But you can find me uh, basically on Twitter or Facebook at slash Nick AESP or on LinkedIn and YouTube at slash Nick Espinoza. And please, Follow me. I'd love to hear. I'd love to basically get a shout out from you and, and you know, send me a message or whatever it is. Uh, but I do content daily and I hope you guys enjoy it. And so that is my quick blurb. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa of the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show here in podcast form on SoundCloud. And make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for breaches of the week. And if you have a data breach to report that's local to you or the major news might have missed it, please, by all means, send it to me. And I'm glad to give you a shout out and include it in the radio show and possibly a daily video. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter and uh, Facebook at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can uh, email questions at securityfanatics.com. Again, that's questions at securityfanatics.com. And I'm more than happy to include your data breach and give you a shout out on the air. With that, Let's begin. And this week in data breaches was absolutely off the rails. Like it just everybody's hacking everybody. But there are some big names in the last couple of weeks that have had data breaches. So let's dive right in. But as always, I want to thank the people that sent me this information in the last couple of weeks. I can't do it without you. 
Thank you so much, Barrett Peterson, Andy Jenkinson, Jay Dance, Chris Fallon, Abdul Rothma, and Kathy Ryan. Thank you. And again, if you have a tip for me, please send it my way. I'm happy to give you a shout out here. And with that, let's start in New York because we are talking about New York Presbyterian Hospital. They notified approximately 12,000 patients of a data breach that occurred in September of this year. Now, the hospital received alert of suspicious server activity on September 8th. And there you go. Now, NYP was able to block an unauthorized user's attempts to download information. However, further investigation revealed that the third party had, quote, used a cloud-based remote information technology customer support program to gain access to the laptops of several of its workforce members, copying and removing desktop files from some of these devices. In other words, they leveraged something like a LogMeIn or a TeamViewer to go ahead and essentially copy everything out, and a lot of threat detection systems won't pick those up as they don't lock those things out. Once the compromised, or I should say one of the compromised laptops contained protected health information belonging to New York Presbyterian Queens and New York Presbyterian Hudson Valley patients. So heads up to you if you're in the New York area, and I know I've got affiliates out your way, heads up. Moving on. Let's talk about Community Health Network out of Indiana. So heads up to all my listeners in Indy. Now, this is an interesting one. Community Health Network patients may find themselves getting targeted ads from Facebook and Google that mention their medical conditions after the health network discovered that a data breach may have led to certain patient information being transmitted to web tracking technology vendors. Community Health Network stated that there was no indication that sensitive information, such as social security numbers, financial account numbers, or credit card or debit card information was collected, information that could have been uh, basically sent to the attackers includes your IP address, dates, times, and locations of scheduled appointments, healthcare provider information, type of appointment or procedure scheduled, communications that occurred through the MyChart system, which could include first and last name and medical record numbers, information about insurance coverage, and names on MyChart accounts. So heads up to you, Community Health Network patients in Indiana. Moving on, let's talk about the Rosewood Corporation, uh, because on November 17th, they reported a data breach to the Attorney General of Texas after an unauthorized party was able to access sensitive consumer information in their possession. According to Rosewood, we were talking about names, addresses, social security numbers, driver's license, government IDs, health insurance information belonging to certain individuals being compromised. They've sent out notices of breach. So heads up to you if anything to do with the Rosewood Corporation in Texas. Moving on, let's talk about AAA or AAA collection. On November 16th, they reported a breach to the Montana Attorney General after they learned an unauthorized party was able to gain access to their data. They have not published so far a notice of breach. However, the state reporting system shows that um, basically one of the one or more of the following may have been compromised: social security numbers, financial account information, government identification numbers, or protected health information. Recently, AAA Collections started sending out breach letters as well. So, if you are in medical debt in AAA Collections, is after you, you should go after them. Moving on, let's talk about Middletown Valley Bank because on November 14, they also had to declare to uh, Montana's Attorney General. And for the record, they may not be located in Montana, same with AAA Collections, but they may have customers in those uh, locales or those states. So they are required by Montana law or California law, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just picking Montana here. But they reported on November 14th, after they discovered an unauthorized party had gained files to the bank's computer network, 
containing sensitive consumer information. So according to Middletown Bank, we're talking names, financial account numbers, social security, uh, driver's license, passport numbers, and other identifying information that was provided to them when you are basically were applying for products or their services. So there you go. Heads up, Middletown Valley Bank uh, customers. Moving on. Innovative Service Technology Management, uh, they reported also to Montana on November 16th, they experienced a ransomware attack. Um, and according to uh, essentially their their IT department, we're talking about names, birth dates, social security numbers, driver's license numbers, passport numbers, financial account information, and medical billing info. There you go. So Innovative Service Technology Management Services, if you use them for all of your IT needs, heads up to you. Moving on, let's head on down to Arkansas and talk about Medicaid clients, so heads up, because according to the apartment, the Arkansas Department of Human Services, the agency discovered a breach of Medicaid clients' information, and they are attempting to notify everyone. A news release explained on September 16th that an employee sent messages from her DHS email to her personal Yahoo account with client information attached. Nobody should ever be using Yahoo anyway for email at this point. The attachments contained Excel spreadsheets used to notify the Department of Health of the number of Medicaid clients diagnosed with the flu. Some of this information included Medicaid recipient ID, date of birth, gender, county, zip code, flu diagnosis of 925 people uh, were basically affected. No names or social security numbers or addresses or financial information were included in the leak. That is a total pain in the butt. Heads up, Medicaid clients uh, in Arkansas. Now, Booz Allen Hamilton of Edward Snowden fame, of CIA fame, of NSA fame, they disclosed a May data incident that potentially exposed a personally identifiable information of their active employees. This could be a national security threat. Now, we're working at the company, a now former employee downloaded a copy of an internal report that was improperly stored on their internal SharePoint site. And basically, uh, outlets are reporting that the compromised information includes employee names, social security numbers, compensation, gender, race, ethnicity, birth, and U.S. government security clearance eligibility. The company says their investigation indicates no intent to misuse the data on the part of the former employee. And it's unclear how many employees were impacted, but they employ approximately 29,000. 300. So there you go. That obviously is a huge issue because, uh, like I said, they work for very sensitive things. Edward Snowden, uh, working for the NSA, was actually a contractor for Booz Allen on loan to the NSA. And here we are. So you never know. Moving on, let's head on over to the UK and talk about the Suffolk police for like my two outlets that carry my show in the UK. Uh, an investigation has been launched after the Suffolk police accidentally published the names and addresses of victims of sexual assault on their website. Now, this information was published on their website and is believed to have contained the victim's names, addresses, dates of birth, and details of the alleged offenses committed against them. A member of the public told the newspaper that basically they saw hundreds of victims on that site. They said the police said the data was accessible to the general public for a short period of time before they removed it uh, as fast as they could and were made aware of this. But obviously, that's a huge, huge problem. A lot of people that that go through those types of assaults have stalkers, have people that want revenge or or retaliation. And so publishing that current information, never a good thing. Hopefully it didn't get out. Hopefully everybody is okay. Moving on, let's talk about Russia because Russia is also getting hacked. They happen to be 
launching a war right now against Ukraine that they shouldn't be, but here we are. So we're talking now about scooter sharing service Whoosh. They confirmed a data breach after hackers started to sell a database containing the details of 7.2 million customers on a hacking forum. Whoosh is Russia's leading urban mobility service platform. They operate in 40 cities within that country with over 75,000 scooters. And you can see a million scooters here in the United States. We do not have Whoosh, which to be perfectly honest is a pretty good name for a scooter company. And here we are. Now, <clears throat> about a week ago or so, Threat actor began selling that stolen data on a hacking forum, which allegedly contained promotional codes that could be used to access a service for free, as well as partial user identification, payment card information, et cetera, et cetera. Is this part of Ukraine's ongoing uh, cyber warfare against Russia to basically even the playing field? Kind of hope it is. Moving on, let's talk about CoinSquare. This is one of Canada's largest cryptocurrency exchanges. These all seem to be tanking lately, and this is not going to help. The exchange mailed, uh, basically emailed customers on November 25th to report a data incident in which an unauthorized third party accessed a customer database containing personal information. We're talking customer names, email addresses, residential addresses, phone numbers, dates of birth, device IDs, public wallet addresses, transaction history, and account balances. Every Everything you would need to run a phishing or identity theft scam. So outstanding. Heads up to you, CoinSquare users out of the Great White North. Moving on, let's talk about Pennsylvania because they have a company called Gateway Rehabilitation Center, and they just notified 130,000 people of a data breach that happened in June. We're talking names, birth dates, social security, medical information, health insurance information, financial account information of current and former employees. And so heads up to you, Gateway Rehabilitation Center out of Pennsylvania. Moving on, let's talk about Home Trust Mortgage. Uh, on November 23rd, they disclosed a data breach. We are talking about a ransomware attack on home trust, and we are talking about names, addresses, and social security numbers of certain customers being compromised. And so heads up to you if you use home trust mortgage for all your home lending needs. Now, on top of this, let's talk about Air Asia because, well, quite frankly, Air Asia is a large, large airline. And this one is, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie, it's amusing. But it's also deeply sad and depressing at the same time. Now, AirAsia got hit with a ransomware attack, and we don't know all the details, but here's what happened. The criminals stole information about AirAsia's staff and their passengers, and then the ransomware gang told the world that AirAsia's IT infrastructure was so chaotic, poorly secured, and downright irritating that they refused to repeat the attack, meaning it is so easy to break into you. You're a hot mess. Let's let other more amateur, uh, you know, ransomware gangs take a shot at you. And that should be terrifying to basically anybody that flies AirAsia. If you're flying AirAsia and their IT infrastructure is this bad to the point where the ransomware gangs are like, I could teach a third grade class how to break into this. I'm not even going to try anymore. It's too easy. I hope their airline maintenance infrastructure isn't nearly as uh, as chaotic, poorly secured, and downright irritating as their IT and ticketing system. And God forbid they lose you in this system. Here we are. Uh, now we have to talk about uh, Chinese state-backed hackers. This is actually an interesting one, and we're going to be talking about them more shortly, but this is a quick hit. State-backed Chinese hackers have launched a spear phishing campaign to deliver custom malware stored in Google Drive to government research and academic organizations worldwide. 
Now, the attacks have been observed between March and October of this year, and researchers attributed this to a cyber espionage group out of China, sponsored by China, known as Mustang Panda. They're also known as Bronze President, as and also TA416. And according to uh, Trend Micro researchers, the threat group targeted mostly organizations in Australia, Japan, Taiwan, Myanmar, and the Philippines. Chinese hackers have been rather prolific lately, although interestingly enough, and we'll talk about this in our deep dive segment, uh, I think they've got bigger fish to fry at the moment as that country is kind of melting down. We might see revolution. We're going to talk about that soon, so stick around. And finally, and we actually have a few different finalies for you because we got some big things to talk about here. The first one is Common Spirit Health, and this is a big heads up for any of my listeners in the United States. This probably affects you, and I know that I've got radio affiliates in multiple markets in the States here. So Common Spirit Health was hit by a cyber attack on October 3rd. That forced that health company to take basically their computer systems offline, and they shortly learned, uh, you know, obviously of this incident. Now, it remains unclear whether patient information was compromised. Patients uh, basically have reported the impacts of cyber attack on their health care and treatments. And so we're not sure right now what's going on with this. There has not been a full statement. I went back and looked because I reported on this a couple weeks ago. But Common Spirit, and here's where this gets me is a nonprofit health system based out of Chicago. That's my home radio market. It's, you know, that's the area I live in. But they operate 140 hospitals and more than 1,000 care sites across 21 states in the United States. In 2019, Common Spirit treated 20 million patients, according to their website, uh, basically their website, uh, Dignity Health International, which is part of the Common Spirit family. So this tells us a couple of different things. That number's before the pandemic. They obviously have treated a ton more people since then, but also because they also own something called Dignity Health International, this is going to be a massive supply chain breach because all of these 1,000 sites and 140 hospitals across 21 states are probably not called common spirit. It might be called your local healthcare, whatever that you've known for years and years as they absorb these names. So this is a huge, huge problem. We are going to be seeing this for months. You know, I'll keep you up to date on this. But if, if I see anything common spirit, it's going to be, ooh, it's going to be quite some time. And another finally we have for you, and I mentioned this earlier, is we've got to talk about China because their state-sponsored hackers have just created a major, major problem. Here's what's going on. A suspected Chinese state-sponsored actor breached a digital certificate authority as well as government and defense agencies located in different countries across Asia as part of an ongoing campaign since at least March of this year. Now, researchers at Symantec linked the attacks to the adversarial group that goes by the name Billbug, citing uh, basically the use of tools previously attributed to this actor. The activity appears to be driven by espionage and data theft, although no data is said to have been stolen to date, although obviously the researchers at Symantec are going to be limited in that uh, from what they found. Now, Billbug is also known as Bronze Elgin, Lotus Blossom, Lotus Panza, uh, Lotus Panda, excuse me, Spring Dragon, and Thrip. It is considered an APT or Advanced Persistent Threat Group, and it is believed to operate on behalf of Chinese and Chinese government interests. Primary targets include government and military organizations and installations across Southeast Asia. Now, attacks um, basically were mounted by this adversary in 2019, and they involved the use of backdoors, uh, various different platforms, and intrusions were observed 
in Hong Kong, Macau, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Now, both of the core softwares they use are designed to grant persistent remote access to your network, even, even though they're known to employ information stealers as well. And so obviously this is a huge problem and they are not alone. We see these kinds of things constantly. We also know that Chinese intelligence years ago broke into the White House and got into the email system and all of that. So, so this is a huge problem that we see worldwide. China continues to do this. But like I said, they're probably distracted right now. And that's a good thing uh, for the rest of us. Obviously, a bad thing internal to China, although they're China, the Chinese people are apparently yearning to be free. Again, stick around for that deep dive. You're not going to want to miss this because we have some culpability there as well. And another finally we've got for you is the 2020 election. We've got a news update. And this is as unpolitical as I can make it here. But it's important to understand these things as, again, we're talking about data breaches and just trying to keep it honest. Here's what happened in the 2020 election recently. A Pennsylvania judge has recommended that the state's high court impose civil contempt contempt penalties against a Republican majority county government that this past summer secretly allowed a third party to copy data from voting machines used in the 2020 election. Obviously, that 2020 election featured then President Donald Trump and uh, challenger Joe Biden. The results of that, obviously, we now have President Biden. And here we are. Commonwealth Court President Judge Renee Cohn Jubilee Rares. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Her 77-page report issued late Friday about two weeks ago said that the July inspection and copying of computer data from machines rented by Fulton County was a willful violation of a court order designed to prevent evidence from being spoiled. She recommended that the justices find that the county, based on the actions of Republican commissioners Stuart Ulsh and Randy Bunch, quote, engaged in vexatious, obturate, and bad faith conduct and quote, in their lawsuit against the Department of State over whether a 2021 inspection by another outside group meant the machines could no longer be used. Judge Cohn, let's just say the judge, because I'm not, not going to pronounce that last name again, who is also an elected Republican, interestingly enough, recommended that the county be ordered to pay some of the state's legal fees that the Dominion Voting Systems Inc. machines in question be turned over to a third party for safekeeping at the county's expense. And I have been over these kinds of things left and right objectively. I sat through Mike Lindell, a.k.a. the My, the My Pillow Guys, Cyber Symposium from start to finish. Um, you know, I've been looking at these kinds of things, uh, you know, and I have yet to find any evidence that would hold up in court. Understand I've written articles on this talking about the chain of custody and what it would take to actually look objectively at a, a machine that you suspect, you know, with malfeasance, having one side or the other. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. If you get your hands on this information and nobody else does, it has the ability to be altered or tampered or worse, uh, or, you know, manipulated. That's why it doesn't hold up in court. We have to have good chains of custody. So I'll keep you informed on that. But obviously, that's a huge thing. And another finally we've got, and I think we've got like two more left because there have been some major breaches in the last couple of weeks. We have to give you an update here on the Twitter breach uh, because this got a whole lot worse. A massive Twitter breach that happened last year exposing more than 5 million Twitter user phone numbers and email addresses was way worse than initially reported. There's new evidence that the same security vulnerability was exploited by multiple bad actors and that that hack data had been offered for sale on the dark web by several different sources, meaning they had a vulnerability so flipping bad 
that that essentially uh, multiple threat actors were able to get in, make a copy of the data. They didn't have to get it, you know, from somebody else. They went right to Twitter. That is a huge security vulnerability. And the Twitters and the Facebooks of the world are constantly being targeted for these things. So it's kind of unconscionable that something like that would happen. And finally, finally, and this is the very last one that we've got for you. We need to talk about WhatsApp. And I have been saying this forever. WhatsApp is not nearly as secure as Facebook has traditionally touted. Facebook obviously now called Meta for, you know, going down the drain purposes. And they have gone down the drain. You check out that stock price, lordy lord. Now, here's what's going on. And as reported by Cyber News, uh, someone is selling a 2022 database of 487 million WhatsApp mobile numbers. This includes accounts from 84 countries, such as the United States, United Kingdom, Russia, Egypt, and a ton others. 32 million are from the US, 11 million from the UK, and on and on and on. WhatsApp has around 2 billion monthly active users worldwide, and this leak just puts nearly half a billion of their users at risk. Cyber News also pointed out that the leaked accounts belong to active WhatsApp users. So if you're thinking, well, I haven't had a, you know, a WhatsApp account in five years and I'd shut it down. I'm not worried about you, but if you're using WhatsApp right now, you are potentially, uh, you know, at risk here because that's obviously a huge thing. The seller could have obtained these phone numbers for the record using a process known as scraping that basically refers to harvesting information at scale, although that violates WhatsApp's terms of service. And the mere fact that that somebody would be able to potentially scrape WhatsApp is all you need to know about the security of that. Remember, this is what Facebook calls hyper secure end end no one can read and on and on and on and we'll talk about that uh in in a second here now the seller also revealed that they're selling this database for seven thousand dollars us um this kind of information that was leaked in this case uh you know phone numbers of whatsapp users is usually uh used for things like phishing attacks or fraud uh you know to send out spam those kinds of things so if you're an active whatsapp user beware of unknown numbers trying to message you or call you on the platform and like i said Facebook has touted this as, oh, it's end-to-end encryption. Nobody can read. Nobody, zero people, anything can read the message you send or receive except you, the sender, and your recipient, and vice versa. That is it. And we have found that that Facebook has integrated AI to read these things. They've got third-party contractors that are reading Facebook or Facebook WhatsApp messages and on and on and on. It is a complete mess. If you think WhatsApp is secure, it absolutely is not. This really proves it. So heads up to you, almost 500 million, a quarter of the the entire WhatsApp community around the globe. You may be caught up in this. That's a huge problem. So be on the lookout for phishing and understand WhatsApp is not nearly as secure you think as you think. And those were your breaches of the week. Crazy crazy couple of weeks even with the holiday break here in the United States. Were you affected? Let me know. And you're listening to Nick Espinosa of the Deep Dive Radio Show, a syndicated radio show, here in podcast form on SoundCloud, and make sure to check your local listings so you can catch it on a radio station near you. And now for the Deep Dive segment, where we take a closer and deeper look at a cybersecurity, cyber warfare, or technology issue around us. And if you have any suggestions for a Deep Dive segment or something you'd like me to dive into, you can once again 
find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. Or you can send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. That's questions at securityfanatics.com. I am more than happy to take a look at it. And uh, if it meets our standards, we are more than happy to do a deep dive on it. So let's begin. And our deep dive of the week actually is on China. China's experiencing the largest, most widespread violent protest they've seen since Tiananmen Square in the late 1980s. But one of the things that we're going to talk about, obviously outside of China, is the culpability, interestingly enough, of the West. And hear me out here on this, because while China owns a lot of this, they don't own everything. And I think this is kind of important. And so let's Let's go through this, because as I mentioned, this is the largest protest we've seen since Tiananmen Square. People are talking revolution, all of this. And while this apparently was sparked by harsh COVID lockdowns, and we're going to talk about that, I think this was a long time coming. So think about this. Surveillance state, forced labor, censorship, uh, you know, not to mention human rights violations against uh, minority groups like the Uyghurs. This all adds up inside China to rage and just a desire to be free from all of this. If you're under surveillance and censored 24-7, working for low wages or slave wages, this is a huge problem. And so we're seeing violent clashes with Chinese authorities now in multiple cities. Citizens have been publicly calling for the removal of President Xi, even though that kind of speech is banned. If you didn't no, you are not allowed to go on Chinese social media or walk out into the street and say, you know, President Xi looks like Winnie the Pooh. That's actually a thing that's banned or President Xi needs to go or we should kill President Xi or whatever it is. All of those things are illegal. Now, with all of this going on, it's important to understand that the Chinese government bears the most responsibility here. Like I said, their policies and actions have directly led to riots and protests in what is the largest, most populous country in the world. Or I should say most populous, not by land, but by population by far. But as I said, we have to be honest here. The rest of the world has to own some of this too. And please, please, please hear me out. Now, we love our technology, and most of this is cheaply produced in China's low-wage to slave-wage factories by their slave-wage to low-wage labor force. There's no doubt about this, and there's other manufacturing areas, but China by far has been the hugest, but the largest ever since the 1970s when they really had this push. So when this all started melting down, it seems somewhat fitting that Apple, yes, Apple, maker of the iPhone, would be at the heart of this and here's how. This is where the violence basically sparked into what some people are calling a possible revolution in China. This is where it started. Hundreds of workers at Apple's main iPhone making plant in China clashed with security personnel as tensions boiled over after almost a month under tough restrictions intended to basically quash a COVID outbreak. Workers at the Foxconn Technology Group plant streamed out of dormitories in the early hours of Wednesday, November 23rd, jostling and pushing past the white-clad guards that they vastly outnumbered, according to a multitude of videos sent by a witness uh, that basically witnessed portions of these protests. I have seen these videos. It is unbelievable to watch. Now, several white-suited people 
pummeled a person lying on the ground with sticks and and one of the clips onlookers yelled fight 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 as throngs of people forced their way past these barricades and you can watch the videos they're tearing down fences and barricades and everything it's just completely overwhelmed at one point several surrounded an occupied police car they began rocking the vehicle screaming incoherently all these kinds of things and the protest started overnight uh, over unpaid wages and fears of spreading infection, according to the witnesses that obviously asked to remain anonymous, speaking to uh, news sources outside of China. Several workers were injured. Anti-riot police arrived on the scene that Wednesday to restore order and on and on and on. Now, this camp is located in Shenzhou in the middle of China, was reportedly operating normally as of Wednesday evening, according to Foxconn. Though we now believe that's not true, given the state of China at the moment. So at this time, um, basically, or I should say at that time, this was a rare instance of violence at the plant in the central city of Shenzhou. And it reflects a buildup of those tensions since the lockdowns began in October. Many of the vast workforce of the more than 200,000 workers at what is known as iPhone City have been plunged into isolation. They were forced to subsist on Spartan meals, scrounged for medication, and on and on. Many of them eventually fled the plant on foot in October as well. It also underscores how Xi Jinping's COVID-0 policy which relies on swift lockdowns to stamp out the disease whenever it pops up, is increasingly weighing on the Chinese economy and throwing swaths of the global supply chain into disarray. Meaning if they lock these people down, you can't work or you can't uh, essentially have product leave the factories. We have slowdowns in this. Like I said, they are the largest manufacturing base by far in the entire world, and they are manufacturing our products. Beijing recently issued new directives ordering officials to minimize disruption and use more targeted COVID controls, but surging outbreaks in major cities have forced local authorities to reach for strict, uh, stricter curbing again. And so to be fair, to be fair to Apple, most big tech companies have this problem. It's not like Androids or, or laptops, you know, or other tech production gets a free pass here. Many of them use uh, many of them use Foxconn or Foxconn competitors, all based out of China. This underscores basically the larger symptoms that we have. Foxconn is used, as I said, by many big tech companies. They have plants all over the world, usually in low-income areas where governments are known to bend rules or turn a blind eye to workers' rights. So we are talking about South uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, Foxconn has plants in Brazil. They were talking about spinning up a plant here in the United States, in Wisconsin, just over the border of Illinois by Chicago and Milwaukee. That never really came to fruition, so that's obviously a huge thing. Apple, though, and let's go back to Apple, in their past, thanks to their third-party suppliers, have been found to have child labor and also what is tantamount to slave labor in their, uh, in their supply chain. So, for example, if you remember, it was Foxconn iPhone plants in China whose buildings had to actually put netting up because the workers were so unhappy, depressed, whatever. They were literally experiencing suicidal tendencies and they had multiple people throw themselves out of windows high up in the plant and kill themselves. So basically they put up netting to catch the people falling so that they could bring them back into the building and I assume put them back to work as opposed to give them a week off and, and some mental health here. Now, as of Sunday through Monday, we're talking November 28th, 27th and 28th, the China 
Chinese government still hasn't gotten this under control, and multiple cities are now experiencing this. I'm sitting here on my initial broadcast Monday, um, November 28th. This is still going on. I'm still watching this and tracking these things for work. Now, aside from physical altercations with protesters to try and reestablish dominance, the, the Chinese government has been rather busy online. This is the other elements of this. Now, as we here, for my day job, track the current situation in China and their government's efforts to quell information online, it's actually been interesting to see legions of quiet or dormant Chinese language accounts on Twitter and other in Western, uh, other Western and Asian platforms outside of China simply come to life and start flooding the ecosystems, like Twitter, for example, with adult content while tagging the names of cities currently experiencing protests and violence. Basically, they're making it harder to find news and actual information about the situation. So think about it this way. You're on Twitter and you want to figure out, oh, there's riots in Shenzhou or Beijing or Henan or wherever they are. And you go ahead and you pop that in there and you're a Chinese speaker. You're just trying to figure out what's happening, you know, with your family or your, you know, your home city and you're outside of China. Now, the what you're getting flooded with are things like uh, advertisements for escort services or pornography or those kinds of things tagging your city into it. The goal there is to trip up the AIs, the algorithms that run the Twitters and Facebooks of the world to start prioritizing other traffic. Meaning if the AI says, oh, wow, well, everybody's talking about escort services in Beijing, all of a sudden that must be a really hot topic. So when somebody searches on Beijing... I'm going to give them all of those really hotly used results about escort services as opposed to the actual news. That's what's happening on Twitter right now. As I personally went through and started looking at these, uh, you know, switching my language, uh, you know, and connecting to to, uh, you know, to uh, Twitter as a as a foreigner, meaning routing my connection, uh, you know, through Vietnam or another another country around China. I start to see as I'm searching for for any city, nothing but escort ads itself. Now, here's the problem, though, especially with Twitter's case. They're at reduced staff at the moment. If you remember, Elon Musk fired 3,700 plus employees. That was half their staff. They lost legions of people, including top executives, all of those kinds of things. So I'm wondering if they're actually going to be able to combat this in some way, shape or form. It's possible that like Tiananmen Square, the military will be brought in and quell the rioters and establish order. So we may see this end quickly or expand to overwhelm even the military, though I don't want to think about that death toll, to be perfectly honest, because for civilians, especially unarmed uh, compared to a military that is heavily armed with firearms and tanks and all those kinds of things, it is it is a lot of bodies that have to die before the military gets overrun. But either way, by the time you may be listening to this, my meaning my show here on the radio, the violence may have subsided in China, but that doesn't mean that China doesn't have ongoing problems. Now think about this, outside of their COVID zero policy lockdown and all of their other internal policies, we really have to ask ourselves here in the West, basically as we own a part of this by using the Foxcons of the world, you know, meaning that Apple or that HP laptop is being basically, you know, manufactured in these plants that are melting down, that are that are using forced and slave labor. We have to ask ourselves, how do we fix our aspects of this? The easy answer seems to be more regulation on these companies. It really does. 
that Foxconn plant was supposed to be built and online. Uh, you know, this is the one in, in Wisconsin. It was supposed to be built and online during the Trump administration, and it never really came online, even as we're sitting here at the next administration, the Biden administration. You know, if, if it was, there could be a local workforce in, you know, southern Wisconsin, northern Illinois that could be earning living wages and working proper hours manufacturing iPhones or whatever it is Foxconn would manufacture there. But that's not going to happen anytime soon. And if you're wondering why, it's simply this. We love our technology to be both cheap and disposable. That $1,500 iPhone, which is already expensive, would be like two or three grand and people would balk. And that's essentially what we're talking about here. If you've got somebody that's working an eight-hour shift making wages because they're being protected by a labor union, that is, you know, that person is making $50 an hour or whatever it would be. I don't, whatever, whatever they can get. And when you're looking at the person in China that's making a dollar an hour or less or three bucks an hour, that is nothing. That keeps the price lower. And so, until, you know, basically that happens, that we start regulating those things, Apple and others are going to continue to make their phones and computers using these low-wage or slave-wage, poorly-treated workforces in China, India, Brazil, you know, you name it. We can't escape this right now. I'm literally recording this on tech that is being built and manufactured in China or any one of those places by that same low-wage, slave-wage workforce. You are watching this or listening to this, uh, you know, and probably not watching this since it's a radio show, but you are listening to this essentially in the same boat. You might be streaming me on an app on your iPhone right now. You know, you might be driving around in your car listening to this on, you know, whatever local affiliate you happen to catch my radio show on. And here we are, that that head unit, that radio in your car, was that manufactured here in the United States? Absolutely not. It's not. And so this is what we are talking about here. Now, hopefully this is, this is going to change, but don't think for a minute that Apple and others are still going to have their marketing that doesn't say that they, that, that, that says they care about this. They will. Apple has very slick marketing. We love, you know, human rights. We love all of these things. Yet, you know, here's your iPhone. And oh, by the way, you know, we found children in our, our, you know, our children in our supply chain, you know, doing child labor. So we're going to fix that and quash that and get new suppliers. This is an ongoing problem. And so I think this is just not going to stop anytime soon. And it's unfortunate. So in that sense, that is what we have to own. If we were really friends with China, not just using them for their manufacturing base, I think we would have put pressure on them right from the gate, right from the uh, 70s when Nixon opened China and China became a manufacturer powerhouse in the world. And we allowed them into like things like the World Trade Organization and all of that. They're even on the Human Rights Council for the UN, which boggles the mind. But here we are. If we had been, I think, straight out of the gate saying, yes, you, we want you to make every tchotchke, everything that you know we've got. But there has to be standards, there has to be regulation, there has to be verifiable uh, you know, controls over this. Maybe the world would have been a better place. But they've always lived in an oppressive regime ever since Mao Zedong basically beat Chiang Kai-shek and took over China and forced it to be a, uh, you know, a communist state. It's now a quasi-communist state. If you've ever been to China, like specifically Beijing or Shanghai, like I have, you can walk around the inner parts of that city and see some of the most 
ostentatious displays of wealth. So they're not quite, you know, straight up communist. Everybody's living in gray suits, making the same thing. There is an enormous amount of wealth that is being generated there. It's just not trickling down. And the last thing we want to see that is happen everywhere else. So there's no easy answers to this, none whatsoever. I, I, I think all of our thoughts go out to the people in China. Uh, you know, hopefully someday you will live without the surveillance state. You will live without that authoritarian control. And until then, keep fighting the good fight. Uh, you're putting your life on the line for, for freedom. And I think that's a pretty good thing. So there you go. I, you know, I, I don't know if anybody's going to give me hate mail on this, but I think it's an important one to talk about. And so that is your deep dive of the week. And thank you so much for tuning in this week. It was another fun show. And I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. It was a really good time. And I hope you keep tuning in. Thank you very much for listening to the Deep Dive Radio Show here with Nick Espinoza. And if you have any comments, suggestions, questions, absolutely anything, once again, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Nick AESP. Again, that's Nick AESP. And you can always send an email to questions at securityfanatics.com. Don't be shy. I love the feedback. We've been having a great time with the show. And as always, stay safe and stay online, everyone. Thanks for listening.